Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. Third week of Advent, and we're talking about love. And it has been pointed out to me, uh, and I knew this, that the traditional Advent themes uh, go hope, peace, joy, love, not hope, peace, love, joy. We've flip-flop the last two themes of Advent. And uh, we've done that for a couple reasons. One is uh, we want to be always informed by church history, but never, never enslaved to it. Okay, so we know that we are not the first people to start a church. We're not the first people to be doing church, not even here in Capitol Hill. And so there are lots and lots and lots of churches and lots of Christians who have come before us and uh, have paved the way for us in many ways. And we want to be informed by that, Um, but we're not enslaved to it. So uh, that's one. Two is, uh, I, I've always felt like love and joy were, were flip-flopped and that they should be uh, love, joy, not joy, love, because our joy comes when Jesus arrives, right? Like when the baby is here. And so we celebrate joyfully uh, uh, on that last week of Advent that we are celebrating the arrival of the Christ. And so uh, that makes some sense to me. And then lastly, uh, this passage that we're looking at, John 1, 9 through 13, really sets up well for love, and next week sets up well for joy, and so uh, that's what we're going to do, okay? So I I know that was bothering a lot of you. Um, I hope that uh, calms all of your fears and concerns. we're, we're going through John. Uh, we're we're going to be in John through Easter. Uh, we're starting Advent in John 1. We're looking at 9 through 13. Here's what I want us to see in this passage. Um, without you kind of looking ahead to the end of the passage, I want you to see how John is really building to the last three words of this passage. Now, don't ruin it by looking ahead to what those last three words are. Uh, some of you have already done that. And um, shame on you uh, for ruining my sermon. But, uh, but John is really building kind of a logical progression to the end of the passage. I want us to see that, okay? Before we get into the text, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to think about something. We're talking about love, and I want you to think about who the person is in the world who you think loves you the most. Who loves you the most? Not who you love the most, but who loves you the most. Now, it might be the same person, might not, might be uh, kind of an unfortunate relational dynamic going on there, but uh, uh, who loves you the most? So think of that person and then ask yourself, how do I know that? How do I measure the love of that other person? What is it about them or the way they've acted towards me or around me or just what is it that makes me think that they love me the most? Okay, this is the argument that John's gonna make in this passage, that how we might know the love of God, how we might measure the love of God to know that in fact God loves us more than anyone else. So, starting in verse nine. John says, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Now, um, we're breaking in at kind of the middle of John's thought here. So I want to back up really quickly for those of you who haven't been with us the last two weeks um, and, and go back up to chapter one, verse one. 
in the first section, John laid out what uh, commentators call a high Christology, this big vision of who Jesus Christ is. And so in order to do that, he starts at the beginning saying, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So John starts his gospel by establishing who Jesus is, that Jesus created all things, that in him was life and in him was light, that that life that he brings is the light for the world. And then the next section we looked at last week is this little kind of tangent about John the Baptist, who is not John the gospel writer, two different people, Somebody this morning came up to me and said, been a Christian for about 50 years, never knew that. Great, finally taught somebody something. So John the Baptist, John the gospel writer, different dudes, both named John, popular name during that day apparently, and, uh, and, and both followed Jesus. So we've got this side tangent about John the Baptist, who John the gospel writer says very clearly was not the light, but just kind of reflected the light. And so now in verse nine, he goes, the true light not John, but the true light enlightens, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And this, um, every once in a while, I like to legitimize the time and money I spent in seminary by talking to you about the Greek, right? So it makes me feel smart, makes me feel like that was a worthwhile use of my time and money. So in this sentence, this idea that he was coming into, the verb there in the Greek is the present participle, which of course you guys know means ongoing continuous action, okay? So the idea here from, for John is that this true light, which enlightens everyone, is coming into the world in this kind of ongoing, increasing revelation about who God is. Okay, and, and most importantly, it says that it enlightens everyone. So this is interesting because for us, we live here in Seattle, and I don't know where you all are from, but it, wherever you are from, it is likely that that place has more Christians than the place you live now, simply because Seattle is one of the least Christian cities in America, least church cities in America. And so when I read this passage that says the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, it makes me stop and go, wait, okay, so what does that mean that the true light is enlightening everyone, all people, in this kind of ongoing present way, even though we're surrounded by people who would say they don't believe in Christ and are not in that sense enlightened by the true light. So what does that mean? In what sense or to what degree is the true light enlightening them? It's a good question. Verse 10. It says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So he's building, John is building on that first sentence that um, he, that the, Jesus, the true light, was in the world in the sense that he created all things and is present in all things. And we talked two weeks ago about the fact that Jesus kind of baked himself into creation, that creation was meant to be an expression 
of his character and will so that we might be able to look at the world, creation, everything around us, and in some sense, see God. In fact, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, picks up this theme in Romans 1. In verses 19 and 20, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to us, because God has shown it to him, to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So John and Paul both say the same thing, that when Jesus created the world, that he imprinted not just us with his image, though that's primary in many ways, but imprinted himself, his divine attributes, his character into the world around us. And actually, I think it's a, a really helpful exercise for us when we are uh, in just kind of going throughout our day, but it may be especially when we find ourselves in kind of the natural world, in creation and in nature in some sense, where things slow down a little bit to actually ask ourselves, okay, what do I, how do I see God? Like to stop in the middle of Seward Park or something where you're surrounded by trees and you can kind of pretend like you're not in a city for a moment and you look around and you could ask yourself like, okay, what, how, how has God revealed himself to me right here and now? How could I walk, turn around 360 degrees and see God? I know for me that I, I named Seward Park because it's one of my favorite places to go and have time of solitude. And there's this one bench that kind of overlooks the water and, uh, and, and it's one of my favorite places to sit and it brings me such joy. And one of the things that I see revealed to me about who God is, is that God wants me to have pleasure, right? Like there, there's, there is a connection that I feel to this creation when I look out on it, it's beautiful to me. Or it's satisfying to me in some way. It, it stirs my heart, stirs my affections in, in a way that it doesn't have to. Like it doesn't have to. God didn't have to create us to be able to appreciate the beauty of his creation. It, our, our relationship to the rest of creation could have been far more utilitarian than that. We could look at a beautiful sunset over the beach with you know, whales leaping or something and go, that is a thing. Like we could have been created to simply look at a, a newborn child and say, that is a child and it exists. And it, I don't know what beauty is, but it could be that. Or, you know, like this is kind of a utilitarian approach to the rest of God's creation, but that's not how he made us. That we can appreciate beauty, that the rest of God's reflection or, or, or the rest of God's creation reflects back to us this enjoyment that we are, we, we are made to laugh, that some of us laugh a lot. Some of us laugh inappropriately. Some of us laugh way more than we should, but we can't help but laugh. Some of you who are those kinds of people are laughing right now, right? Like, <laughs> and this is, this is joy that we bring, but, but listen, like God didn't have to make it that way. So what can we learn from that? That God actually loves us in the sense that he wants us to have pleasure, to appreciate the world around us, 
to not just interact with it in a utilitarian way, but he's given us the ability to recognize beauty and recognize humor and, and be able to enjoy our lives. That says something to us about who God is. So Jesus was being revealed in this kind of ongoing process, this ongoing revelation of God, and he has always been here at the same time. So he kind of baked these ideas into creation and continued to reveal himself. And so the biblical story shows us this, that he made creation, made us to appreciate it and be able to interact with it, and then spoke to the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob told them about himself. And then they, he spoke through the prophets, and then he spoke through Jesus. And then we'll see later that he continued to speak by sending the Holy Spirit, by forming the scriptures, this ongoing revelation and enlightening about who he is. Every square inch of God's creation speaks his name and alludes to his presence. But verse 10 says, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. A.W. Pink, in his commentary on John, says this about that line, says, weigh well these words. They are solemn, pathetic, tragic. Perhaps their force will be the more evident if we ask a question. When the sun is shining in all its beauty, who are the ones that are unconscious of the fact? Who needs to be told that the sun is shining? The blind. How tragic then when we read that God sent John to bear witness to the light. How pathetic that there should be any need for this. How solemn the statement that men have to be told the light is now in their midst. What a revelation of man's fallen condition. So uh, even though this true light has been in the world since day one and has been revealed over and over and that each and every person has, has been enlightened in the sense that the light has shone on them, he says that some have been blind to it, did not receive him, did not acknowledge that they were in the presence of the light because they could not see it, and were blinded by sin, we're blinded by sin in the sense that our natural inclination becomes towards ourselves. We've talked about this a lot, that St. Augustine talked about the effects of sin as the soul turning in on itself. And so that we can no longer see God and we can no longer really see God in the creation around us, but we can only increasingly see ourselves. I used a quote from David Foster Wallace a couple weeks back where he says this, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid and important person in existence. That's what sin does to us. It convinces us to look only at ourselves, to see if we see at all the world only as a reflection of who we are or who we cannot be. That everything around us, God himself, is seen through the lens of how does this affect me? How does, what does this say about me? How does this impact me? So we're blinded by sin, but we're also blinded by Satan. And one of the ways I see this happen in my own life is through distraction. I was at Costco recently, and I'm one of those people that just loves Costco and not just for the samples. Thank you. 
Costco, brother. I love Costco. And um, the other day, I was there with my whole family, which makes me love it less, uh, to be there with all of them. Um, but I, I took one of the children out to the car early because we were having behavior problems and uh, was waiting for the rest of them. And it was taking a little longer than I expected. So I actually got out of the car and was standing in the middle of the parking lot like this, looking at the front door, thinking, what emergency has happened? Has Costco so gripped their hearts that they are unable to leave? And I can understand that. But I, I was looking and I just had this moment in the middle of the Costco parking lot where I'm just looking intently at one thing. I'm not barraged by all of what Costco's beauty is. And I was able to be outside of it, looking at the front door and I had like an existential moment in the Costco parking lot where I felt the gentle breeze against my skin and I was reminded of God. This really happened. This is not just like a pastor's illustration. This is one of the true ones. I felt this gentle breeze against my skin and I was overwhelmed with melancholy immediately. And I'm not a melancholy Collie person, but I was in this moment because it hit me how much of my attention had been given to the things and the temptation and the sales pitch and all of the kind of gross commercialism of the moment of Christmas and Costco and all the thing. And in this moment, God just sent this gentlest of breezes against my hairy face and I felt it and I felt him. And it occurred to me that he brought that moment to cut through all of the crazy distraction that never allows me to think deeply about anything that actually matters. And so I'm convinced that one of the primary ways that Satan attacks people is simply by shallow distraction coming at us like one shotgun shot after another. And in fact, the fourth person of the Trinity, C.S. Lewis, speaks to this <laughs> in his book, uh, The Screw Tape Letters. Too much? If you've never read The Screw Tape Letters, it is a, a series of letters from kind of a senior demon to a junior demon coaching him up. It's kind of leadership development for demons totally makes sense. Um, and so this senior demon is riding to the junior and says this about the man the junior is trying to tempt away from God. He says this, as this condition becomes more fully established, you will be gradually freed from the tiresome business of providing pleasure as temptation. As the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness, and as habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forego, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention." I may have updated pieces of this, you may or may not notice. Um, you no longer need a good book, he writes, which he really likes to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. An article about Trump's latest foolishness or cleverness will do. You can make him waste his time not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but on text threads with those he cares little about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not partying, but staring at his Instagram feed. 
all the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return so that at last he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here in hell, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. Christians describe God as one without whom nothing is strong and nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why. In the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them. In Spotify playlists and online shopping, in internet stalking of those he does not like or know, in the constant swiping of left or right with no real expectation of relationship, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than video games, if video games can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. Gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So the, the blindness of distraction is not a blindness per se. We can still see. We're just told to see so many things at once that we don't see any one thing at all. We're asked to give our attention to so many things at once, we don't give our attention to anything at all, let alone the things that actually matter. So we're blinded by sin in that it makes us look at ourselves. We're blinded by Satan in that he distracts us. But there's also a kind of willful blindness of those who don't want to face the implications of belief. That passage in Romans 1 we read a second ago about God revealing himself through creation, there's more to it, both at the beginning and the end. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it's not simply that they don't see the light, that they're accidentally blind to the light. They actually do see the light, but intentionally suppress it. Why would they do that? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Our images have been digitized, but they are no less images. Some of us reject the light because we took a peek and didn't want to deal with the implications. And so we pretend like we didn't see it. 
Just a few chapters later in John 3, the famous John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, if you get to verse 19, Jesus says this, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may clearly be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so some of us are at times blinded by our sin and the inclination to look at ourselves and not anything else. Some of us are blinded by distraction and Satan moving our eyes all over the place. And some of us actually do see by the light and we don't like what we see and so we don't look. An ugly person avoids all mirrors so that they don't see what is true. But, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is, this is, this is remarkable. Like John has just made this argument that, that we are blind to light, that the light's been around us this whole time and, and we're blind to it. Some, some by temptation, some by will, just blind to the truth that is around us. And he says, and yet in the midst of that scenario, in the midst of the fact that many of us are very regularly intentionally turning a blind eye, like a husband sitting on the couch watching his wife wrestle with the trash only to just pretend like he doesn't see it's happening so he doesn't have to do it. I've heard, never done it, but I've heard that happens to some husbands. (laughs) That in the midst of that still, God offers a chance to become part of his royal family. And the transaction is simple. Last week, I told you that the core verb, the verb that's used more than any other verb in the entirety of John's gospel is this word, to believe. And that that verb never has an adjective, never has an adverb attached to it. So it's never believe hard or believe with all of your heart or believe passionately or believe better than everyone else. It's just simply believe. It's always believe. That that's the transaction. That it says, in fact, that all who did receive him, and the the sense of that word to receive is, is hospitality, that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And simply to receive Jesus is simply to open the door and go, yeah, you're here to be, to be with me. You're here to be my king. You're here to be my Lord. You're here to offer me a place in the royal family. Yes, I'll take it. That's what's on offer. Simple belief is the pivot point of our relationship with God. It is the means by which we experience the life and the light that we've been offered. This is truly an incomparable offer. Everything for nothing. And, and I've heard over the years, I've heard people say, skeptics or non-Christians say to me, how can it be just that? Like, you just have to believe that's it. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be different. You don't have to act morally. All you have to do is believe. Like, why, why is it that? Why, why believe in Jesus and not in somebody else? Why is it that simple? It can't be that, that you just have to choose right That's what it comes down to. Your eternal destiny is just simply down to who chose the right guy. And I would say, yes. But think about about this situation. You've got Jesus who comes to you and simply says, here's the deal. 
here's the deal I'm offering. There's a lot of faiths and philosophies out there, and they all offer their, their, their own deal. Here's the deal I'm offering. I'll give you everything, and I'm asking you for nothing. Take it or leave it. Imagine going to a series of car lots as you trudge through the living hell of buying a new car and, and you go to the Ford dealership and they go, hey, we've got these 10 cars. They range between 20 and $40,000. We can get you on a good payment program. Okay, you go to Toyota, similar deal. You go to Tesla, similar deal, but it's like way more expensive. And, uh, and, and then you go to one, and let's just say it's Honda because that's what I drive. And they go, here's the thing. You can have all the cars and, and really for nothing. If you walked away and told your friend, hey, here are my options, and, and I can do the Ford for 20 grand or the Tesla for 60, or I can buy a thousand Hondas for zero dollars, and I'm really struggling with this, your friend would look like you like you were a moron. Because you would be a moron. This is the offer. Jesus has done it all. Jesus offers you everything. Jesus offers you a place in the royal family and simply says, all you got to do is join me, receive me. No other faith or philosophy can make you that kind of deal. Every other faith and philosophy says, God is at the top of the mountain, climb there. Here's the path, but climb there and you will find him. Jesus came down off the mountain, picks you up on his back and says, you want to go to the top? I'll take you there. Which is the better offer? So yeah, is it as simple as just believe and that's all it takes to be this massive change in your life and your, your eternal destiny? Yes, is that not fair? No, it's not fair. It's not fair at all. And that's the offer of the gospel. And you would be a fool not to take it. John says, some did receive him. Many didn't, but some did. And to those people, he, came, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, at the beginning, I asked, how do you know that the person who you think loves you the most actually does? And we're beginning to see John's answer to this question. That John goes, listen, when you were blind, I was the light. When you were dead, I offered life. When you turned away from me willfully, I pursued. I baked my identity into creation, into reality, so that there's literally nothing you could look at that you, if you looked hard, could not see me. I'm everywhere, you can't avoid me. And then I spoke really clearly through both patriarchs and prophets. We wrote down my will and descriptions about who I am. I walked with Israel for generations through their sin and rebellion and repentance and stupidity over and over and over. And then I sent you Jesus and Jesus was literally me walking next to you, telling you, hey, I'm God. All you gotta do is believe in me. And then Jesus went to the cross and died so that we might live over and over and over, Jesus is making a way. This is how we know that God loves us because there is no obstacle that he can't and in fact won't overcome to reveal himself to us, to love us. There is no obstacle. And in fact, it gets better. 
Because in verse 13, he says, these children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is the climax of this passage for John. That in the midst of blindness, Jesus still offers a place in the royal family that all we have to do is believe, just receive him. He's walking into our home and all we have to do is receive him into our home. And he says, listen, it's not going to be because of your birthright or your parents' faith. I don't care who your parents were, whether they were the most devoted Christians and your grandma has prayed for you every waking hour of her life, or if you come from a completely non-religious, completely angry, atheistic background, none of it matters. Jesus has overcome whatever that obstacle is. You can't earn it by your birthright, nor can you lose it without one. This would certainly have been meaningful to the Jews who heard this in the first century, who thought their relationship with God was based on the fact that they could tie their bloodline to Abraham. But he didn't stop there. He says your flesh, this, the natural, normal part of you doesn't desire it because Satan and sin have turned that flesh against you. So it says your birthright, your flesh, and your will, your desire, your, your ambition, your self-control, your discipline will never cause you to arrive at life. You cannot will yourself into the royal family. Only God can do that. But of God. Paul does something similar in Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. I won't read the whole thing, but he sets it up by saying, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's Paul's setup. He was not a kind person. He wouldn't want to have been friends with them. But verse four, the two most important words in your Bible, but God, but God, everything was bad. Everything was the worst. You were running from God, rejecting God, following everything that is around you except for God, but God, but God intervened, not but your righteousness, not but your discipline, not but your family, not but your anything, not but you at all, but God. And John, too, says, you were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. God did it himself. There is no obstacle that God won't overcome. So how do we know that God loves us? We see his action. We see him overcoming obstacles. We see the relentless pursuit of us. I, I, as a pastor, uh, I've done a lot of premarital over the years, and, and I uh, have enjoyed doing that. I've sat with literally millions of couples. Uh, <laughs> and one of the questions that I will often ask is, um, and I, I like to do this separate, is why do, you, why do you love this person? Why do you love them? And, and, and I want to hear that answer, and, and the best answer that I, I can hear, the, the answer I want to hear when I ask that is, I don't know. 
I just do. And there's times when I will ask a, a, a woman that and she'll say, I don't know, I just do. And I'll go, I don't know either, honestly. <laughs> but here's why that's the best answer. Because if the answer is a list of 10 things that you really like about this person, and it's these 10 things that cause you to love them, then the moment those 10 things aren't still true, what happens to the love? It is by nature conditioned. These are conditions for the love. And so if it's their uh, undying beauty, it, it'll die, right? Like, so <laughs> if it's, if it's, I mean, no matter what it is, like it, it has the potential to not be anymore. The best answer is, I don't know. I just love them because here's what that means. That means there's, there will be nothing that I will not overcome in order to continue to love him because there wasn't any particular thing that it was based on in the first place. I just love him. This is God. God, if we were able to ask God, like, why do you love these people? I'd imagine the angels often would, would see the foolishness that we participate in on a daily basis and would go to God and go, why do you love these people? And I'd imagine God goes, I don't know. I just do. They're mine. They're mine. It's not because they're... they're good. It's not because they're nice. It's not because they're kind. It's not because they sacrifice. It's not because they're good looking. It's, it's, I just do. The, the love of God for us is unconditional. He just loves us. And so he pursues and pursues and pursues. He overcomes our blindness. He overcomes our self-obsession. He overcomes our distractions. And he makes us alive by his will, by his doing. Because if it were left up to us, we would all be out of luck. And so he looks down and reveals and reveals and reveals and reveals and reveals. And when we are still blind, he just goes, okay, fine, I'll do it myself. And he makes us alive. Now, Back to that question that I asked a moment ago where I've heard skeptics say that's all it is. It's just you have to believe and that's, that's the whole thing. You don't have to be good. You don't have to you know, care for other people. You don't have to do any of it. And I say yes. And the, the key piece here is that we get the order right. See, the, the Bible here, John has just described us as dead and blind. And so requiring a lot from dead blind people is kind of a fool's errand expecting dead blind people to be super moral or super obedient or super anything is, is kind, of, kind of dumb. And so God goes, listen, I'm gonna make you alive and allow you to see, and then let's go. I made you alive, so live. I've, I've opened your eyes to see, now, now look. See what the, what, what's true about the world. See what's around you. See, we've, we've got to get the order right. We were dead and blind, but now we've been made alive and given sight. And so God calls us to live and to see. Paul describes us as slaves who have been set free, so we should no longer live as slaves anymore. We are dead people who've been made alive, so stop acting dead. You are blind people who can see. Open your eyes. Open your eyes to see the love of God all around you. 
If you cannot describe why God loves you and you cannot see his love for you, it's simply because you aren't opening your eyes. You've been given sight. So when John tells us that we were born not of blood or the will of flesh nor the will of man, all of these things are important parts of who we are. But until we've been made alive, we cannot live into them. So the faith of our fathers doesn't immediately impact our faith, and yet we have given the, been given the responsibility to raise children if we have them, and statistically you probably will eventually, and for those who are around us, our friends and coworkers, to have impact on them. They can't be saved because of our salvation, but God often uses that to save people and open eyes. That our flesh today doesn't desire God, but our truest self does want this. It is what we were made for. And we have to fight through kind of the meager offerings of temptation in order to get at the true desires that are underneath it all. So I mentioned that in the mornings we give donuts uh, as bribes uh, for people to come on time. And each and every week, I stand before those donuts as they beckon my heart, and, and, and I deny them. Three, I'm three weeks in. I've denied them every week because I say to you, donut, you're not what I want most. Your meager offerings cannot tempt me. I want other things more. I don't, I, no, I do say it out loud sometimes. It helps. Temptations of the world around us kind of, kind of give us just enough satisfaction to keep us wanting more, but they all speak to some deeper desire in us. So yes, our flesh doesn't want to be alive in that sense today because of sin, and yet it wants nothing more ultimately. We just have to push through the shallow offerings of the world around us. One of the things I love about Seattle is that I'm surrounded by ambitious people. Surrounded by people who have discipline and self-will and want to change the world. And until we are made alive, that discipline and self-will and ambition doesn't aim us towards Christ. It cannot aim us towards Christ. But when we have been made alive and we've been made able to see, we can direct all of that energy towards the things that matter most. So the key is just understanding the order. Yes, we have been given an opportunity to simply be a part, to be a part of the royal family by simple belief. And then we have been also empowered to be the kinds of people that the world around us desperately wants us to be all by the power of the love of God. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.